Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're going to read three scriptures found in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. If you did not receive a sermon card when you came in, you can raise your hand and you'll be served at this time. Um, Yes. But you see there at the top in Jonah chapter 1, we got one up here in the front as well. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, notice that, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. I want to preach a message today titled, Jonah, We All Are Going. We all are going. Before I do, I want to pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus is king and the kingdom is here. And I thank you for this space in the midst of a corrupt and evil generation and perversity and such hatred and evil all around us. I thank you for this moment in this space that we can, by the help of your Holy Spirit, put aside thinking about what's taking place in the world and focus in on what's taking place just in our world. The world of our heart, the world of our mind, the world of our life, the world of our family, the world of our job that we, by your grace, would allow your kingdom to come, that we would start there because change starts here. It starts now. It starts with us as we encounter you. Give us ears to hear, hearts prepared to receive. I acknowledge my need of you, Holy Spirit. Be the voice behind the voice. Cause Christ to be revealed to people. Convince and convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. May the power of the cross be put before each of us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it has been referred to as the missionary book of the Old Testament. You say, well, why is that? Speaking of the book of Jonah, as we're looking at the minor prophets in this series. Because the book of Jonah contains no direct message to Israel and yet teaches Israel a major truth regarding the nature of God. That the only God, the one and only true God, that He is the God of all people, of all nations, of all races, all color of skins, all ethnicities, that he's not just the God of the Jews or the God of the Americans, but he is the God of all people. Can I hear an amen? He is the creator of all. He's the God of Jews. He's the God of Gentiles. 
And as God and as the creator of all, he has a heart and he has mercy for all. See, Jonah was from the Nazareth area. It's interesting because in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees claimed that no prophet ever came from the area of Nazareth. And yet there was Jonah. It it makes me speculate a little. Because Jonah represented one of the major dysfunctions Israel embraced, which is becoming all about Israel to the neglect of God's heart to people around them. And it's funny that they just sort of ignore in the days of Jesus where Jonah was born. No prophet ever came from Nazareth. Well, Jonah did. And they're not just going to probably have a a problem with Jonah's message. We find that they have a problem with Jesus' message, don't they? But Jonah ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II. You, You find a couple scriptures in 2 Kings chapter 14, 25, and 27 that speaks of the ministry of Jonah the prophet. And Jonah began his ministry during the time that Elisha's ministry was ending. Now, oftentimes when we think of Jonah and you talk to people and maybe friends or co-workers or people at school or in the universities or professors, they often begin to talk about how do we deal with this person called Jonah in this book called Jonah. Is it a parable? Is it, a, is it just a made-up story that teaches biblical truth? Is, is Jonah a real person? Well, we don't have to speculate as followers of Jesus Christ today because Jesus Christ, the only one who died and rose again never to die, he believed in Jonah. He believed in Jonah in the sense that he believed Jonah was a real person He was a real prophet sent from God and that he actually was swallowed by a great fish. So when people seek to take a stance to become argumentative regarding Jonah, I point to Jesus. Point to what Jesus said because the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means Jesus never once, never once had a wrong opinion. He never once missed it and interpreted God's word wrong. He was sinless. He was flawless. He was perfect in execution. And Jesus believed Jonah was a real person and a real prophet of God. In fact, uh, maybe you've heard of, maybe not, but Frank Bullen, he was an experienced weller. And he testified that on one occasion as they were out, uh, you know, capturing whales and as a weller, that on one occasion a shark 15 feet in length had been found in the stomach of a sperm whale. 15 feet. Now let's just speculate for a moment. If Jonah was of massive stature like myself today, if Jonah was just, I mean, massive to, let's say, you know, about 6'4", you know, 265, just chiseled by the hand of God. If, If Jonah was just that big, That massive. Well, he still ain't as big as 15 feet. So the fact that we think from even a scientific, a biological perspective, it's more than possible that Jonah, if he even was as massive, 6'4", as this humble servant standing in front of you today, 
It's more than possible. Notice in the text, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he speaks of Nineveh. This is still about Nineveh. Well, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And what's interesting, I, I either did not know this or forgot, had forgotten this, but Nineveh was surrounded by a hundred-foot wall around the entire city. Hundred-foot wall. That takes gated community to a whole new level. Hundred foot. They would have chariot races on top uh, of the wall. It was that thick, but a hundred feet high. And notice God calls it a great city. It's not great because of the character of the city. It's not great because of the accomplishment of the city. The word great means it's great in size. This is important because we live in America and it even fills into American churches. We think just because something is great in size that everything then is great within. That's not the case. Because I, I know we can have great homes in size and not everything be great in the marriage. Come on. I, I've seen we can have great bank accounts and, and great open doors in our business and our career and not everything be great in our character. Are you with me? But when God says Nineveh's great here, he doesn't mean it's great in the ways that we want to be great as people of God. It's great numerically. It was a, it was a massive city for the day and age that Jonah lived in and his ministry took place in. Notice in verse 3 that after the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise and go to Nineveh, we find in verse 3 that Jonah arose, but he didn't arise to go, he arose to flee. And what's interesting is that the text highlights what he's fleeing from. He's fleeing not just from the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Now, we're talking about minor prophets and major missions. And last time I was together, I did a, a, a message titled Majors and Minors in the School of Prophets. And here we find a minor distinction with major implications. Let me give you an understanding of what I'm talking about. It's a minor distinction but major implications because oftentimes... We understand, those of us that's been around the church in Scripture or followers of Jesus Christ, we affirm and Scripture affirms that God is everywhere. We believe in the omnipresent God, that there's no place within the universe that God is not there because He created it all. But a minor distinction that has major implications is though we affirm that, the revealed, manifested tangible anointing and presence of God is not everywhere. And so often what we do is we have believers and we have churches and we have great people who believe in the fact that God is everywhere, but they don't pursue and understand that God wants to specially reveal and encounter us with the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Jonah is fleeing from the presence. Listen, we can never be a church that flees from the tangible, revealed, manifested presence of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom of God. We can't just 
in knowledge affirm that God is everywhere and not experience the reality of His presence here with us. God wants us to encounter Him. Actually, He wants to encounter us. So notice He's fleeing from the presence. I would say most of us here the, the, who faces I, I know and well and uh, are faithful here and this is your community of believers, I, I would say most of us acknowledge the importance of sound teaching and sound doctrine. We see that as the involvement in the testimonies that come out of growth phases. But, but do we acknowledge also the importance of experiential knowledge with the person of the Holy Spirit? It's a, it's a minor distinction, but it has major implications for the posture of our life, the pursuit of our life, of when we gather. That actually when we gather, and there's two or three gathered together in His name, the presence, the revealed presence, and what God wants to do is different than just when we're going about our daily activities. God's always with us, but when we come together in His name, He wants us to experience the ministry and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit who takes the things of God and the things of Jesus and the things of heaven and makes it come alive and real to us. Makes it tangible. The tangible, revealed kingdom of God. You see this in the New Testament when Jesus, before He ascends, He's with the eleven and He gives them what we know of the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and notice what He highlights that as they go... And as they go through life, he says, And lo, I'm always with you. Always with you. He speaks about this revealed, tangible presence of the Lord being with us. But notice, it's as we go in obedience to what he's called us to. So this gives insight of why Jonah, in the book of Jonah, highlights that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah Arise and go, and he arises and flees. But what is he fleeing from? He's fleeing from being able to experience the tangible and revealed presence of God in his life. Now, as believers, we don't walk around 24-7 with a feeling God. But listen, as believers who follow the Lord in obedience to his word to our life, the Lord absolutely reveals his manifest presence and power to us at times. And what I'm trying to tell many of you here is that maybe you were like me or what not, and it's not necessarily your tradition to experience the revealed ministry of the Holy Spirit, but God has that for you. And have your heart in pursuit to encounter God. Don't allow your heart to be a heart that is fleeing from pursuing encountering God and allowing God to encounter you. Notice then it says that he, he goes down and he finds a ship going to Tarshish. And verse 3 says he arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, so he paid the fare to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice that Jonah had to pay. Jonah had to pay because he's fleeing from where God is leading. See, I have found, one, that 
when God leads me and I obey, He pays. See, I have found that when God calls you to something, then He gives you the resources needed to fulfill what He's called you to. See, I have found that as I have, by God's grace at times, been able to respond correctly and follow the presence instead of flee from the presence, that God pays for what is needed in what He's called me to. And it's the same for us. But notice, as Jonah flees from the presence in the Word of the Lord, he has to start paying. It's one thing to live life depending on your own ability to pay for things. It's another thing to depend on the Lord's ability to pay for things that He's called you to. Come on. And He had to pay. And here's the point for you and I today that we see. Is that we will always pay for not following where the Lord is leading. We will pay in a negative sense some way in some manner. Jonah had to pay. In the New Testament, it talks about us bringing harm onto ourselves where we flee from the pattern of sound doctrine and the pattern of good works and what God's called us to, that when we flee from it, we begin to pay by bringing difficulties into our life. I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough. I still consider myself young, but I've lived long enough. I'm tired of paying for my mistakes. I'm tired of paying for a callous heart. I want the Lord to do something in me today and do something in you today that our hearts are pursuing the presence, the revealed, tangible encounter with God's power that enables us to continue to have a yes, Lord, on the inside to see the Lord open doors, to see the Lord pay. It's the saying that I've had for two years now is that the Lord's doing me good for His sake. See, that's what happens. When you start following the presence of the Lord and you make encountering God and walking close to God a priority, then He begins to do you good, not because you're good. He begins to do you good for His sake. Anybody want God to do your good and your marriage good and your family good and your business good and your career good for His namesake? Well, we need to learn from Jonah today because, listen, we will always pay for being intentionally in the wrong place and with the wrong people. Can I tell some young people here today, you will always pay. You will pay more than you want to pay. You'll stay longer than you want to stay. When you intentionally put yourself in the wrong place with the wrong people. Jonah is intentionally, not in deception, not a, I didn't know, intentionally putting himself in the wrong place with the wrong people and therefore he's got to pay. This is how life works. We'll always pay for having the wrong friends and going with the wrong crowd. In the New Testament, it's very clear to us. It's clear to us as adults that don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Don't be deceived. If you let the wrong people and the wrong places be the closest to you, you're going to pay. And you're going to pay a payment you don't want to pay. It's going to lead to more hurt. It's going to lead to more difficulties. It's going to lead to more apathy and compromises and cultural Christianity. It's a payment we don't want to pay. Let me hear an amen. You say, I got some new people in my life. 
Pastor Chad, I'm wondering, are these couples, are these friends, are these, these people reaching out to me, are these friends and people that I should begin to journey with and allow into my life? Well, listen, if they're leading you away from following the presence of the Lord or leading you away from following the Word of the Lord, they're simply the wrong friends. If they're not friends that exhort and stir you up in your pursuit for the presence of God, fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, knowing God intimately, experientially, and causing you to hunger more for the Word of the Lord, then they're the wrong friends, period. It's that simple. And when I look at Jonah and I look at this story and I think about us and God's heart for us here today, I ask myself the question, I wonder if we followed the presence consistently. I wonder what our life and our marriage and our career and our emotional health and, and, and our life would look like if we continually pursued the presence of the Lord. What if we followed the presence what would we see God pay for? What would we see God's grace take care of? What would we see God's mercy hid in our marriage? What would we see weaknesses made strong by God's power? What would we see God open doors that we don't deserve? I wonder if we followed the presence, what we would see. That's what I think about. Then we see in verse 4, it says that the Lord then sends out a great wind on the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Notice that Jonah pays. He's in the ship. He goes down into the ship and the Lord allows this great storm to arise. So great that the ship's about to be broken up. Is that not the truth for us? That when we begin to flee from the presence of the Lord, that when we begin to flee from the word of the Lord to us and what he's asking and calling us to, that brokenness is always the result of such storms in our life. Not a good brokenness, but a brokenness of heart, a brokenness of sorrow. That brokenness is always the result of storms and trials that come about due to our intentional waywardness. The ship's about to be broken up. Why? Because he's moving away from what God has called him to. Did you know that the Bible's clear in Ephesians 1 that every one of us in Christ, that we are a part of a high calling? Come on. We are a part of a high purpose. You feel like you're not a part of something great today? You need to get back and have the eyes of your heart enlightened. That we might feel minor, but we're a part of a major mission of God. Come on. We have great value. We have great worth to the plan of God. But when we flee that, things begin to break up because intentional disobedience always leads to more brokenness in our life. Notice in verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo and that, that which was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Notice everybody who's working on the ship, the mariners, they begin to become afraid. They begin to cry out to their God. See, this is how storms in our life reveal if we have the right friends. Storms and trials reveal whether we got the right people in and around our life. Why? Because storms always reveal who a person's God is. In Jonah, he's with the 
wrong crowd in the wrong place and it becomes even more evident because once the storm hits, these people begin to cry out to their God. Not the true God, but to their God. See, when you get in a storm and you find friends in a storm, whatever they turn to first, that is ultimately the God that's leading their life. When they turn to escapism, when they turn to just, you know, uh, substance abuse, when they turn to, to shopping or whatever, it's revealing the God they trust in in the times of storms and difficulties. And when you're going through a storm and a trial and the friends around you don't seek to encourage you to turn to the true God and to Jesus Christ, you got the wrong friends. You need some friends that will help you and speak to you in love that in difficulties don't turn away from the presence, turn to the presence of the Lord and let the Lord work in your life. Notice in verse 5 it says, so they began uh, to throw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. This is how God uses storms. This is how God uses trials in our life. He doesn't create all storms. He doesn't create all trials, but this is how God ultimately will use all storms and use all trials if we'll allow him. What will he do? That storms, trials, and difficulties have a way of leading us to wisely lighten our load. What do you mean lighten our load? That we have a tendency as humans to complicate life, to think we need a bunch of stuff to feel content, that we got to be involved in everything to feel valued, that we got to keep up with the world and the Joneses, so to speak, to, to be a part and fill in with culture and not, you know, seem odd or weird. But listen, storms help us lighten the load we carry. It helps us rid ourselves of values and priorities that are actually not that important to what God has and what God's called us to. They help us lighten wrong, us from wrong expectations. They help us lighten from having too much busyness and activities and movement in our life. Storms and trials help us to lighten our burdens and load. That ultimately, the burdens, the activities, the values we have are kingdom driven, are eternally focused, that will make the most difference to our family and to our friends and to our life and those around us. This is what storms do. Notice if, the, if there wasn't a storm, they just keep selling, carrying all the cargo. This is why some of you say, man, as soon as we start coming dwelling place, you know, my life was just everything's good, start coming dwelling places like storms hit, trials hit. Yeah, because that's how God begins to refine us to lighten some load of worldly thoughts and worldly mentalities and, and worldly desires to get His mind and His thoughts and His desires and His pursuits for our life. And the good news is, if you allow it to take place and you become light, lighten the load, guess what happened? You'll feel lighter. And you'll feel what Jesus said, Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I wonder when I think about this, I wonder if instead of just waiting for storms and trials to be used to lighten our load, I wonder if we just live light. What if we just lived in the simplicity of the gospel and the simplicity 
of the gospel that Christ is all we need and in Him we are complete. And what if we truly live with the simplicity that there's nothing actually the world can offer to give us satisfaction and rest and joy and, and feeling worthy and, and, and a sense of worth and purpose? What if we just live light? I wonder then if maybe what in the New Testament we see in 2 Peter 1.6 where it says, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Huh. I wonder if the need to be grieved by various trials would be removed from our life. Peter says to the believers, if need be, you've went through some fiery trials. Why? Because God used the trials to get us to lighten the load, to get the right values, get the right pursuits, get the right mindset in our life. So I wonder if we live lighter, we actually would not need as many storms and trials that seek to lighten the load. What if we just live light? What if we today just said, Holy Spirit, I, I'm done of speculating, questioning, and making things complicated. I'm just going to accept the simple gospel that in Christ I'm complete and there's nothing else out there where I can find ultimately what I'm looking for. Whether it's for my marriage or my career or my purpose or for, for emotions or, 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 or for my heart and sense of fulfillment. What if I just finally rested and accept that Jesus truly is, truly is the answer for all we're looking for? What if we lived like? Could you imagine as a church what joy and what peace and what rest if we just chose to live like? Not get light and then gain it all back in our life. But what if we just live like? I wonder. So trials and difficulties, it has a way of helping us shed wrong values, shed activities and wrong burdens and then you see in verse 6, the captain comes to Jonah because Jonah, he's in the lowest part of the ship and he's sleeping. It's amazing that you can get a false sense of peace. You can get a false sense of security when you're moving away from God's calling. It's a scary thing. So there's people in the world and they're heavy, but they, they don't realize they're heavy because the enemy in the world gives them a false sense of peace. That's why a lot of us, before we came to dwelling place, before we began to pursue the presence of the Lord, before we began to pursue Jesus, it's like our life seemed to be sort of, everything was sort of cool, it was sort of peace. Then we come and begin to focus on Jesus. Trials come, why? Because that false peace and security that makes people think, you know, I don't need the Lord. Everything's okay in my life. It can come even when people are moving away from God's purpose for their life. So they go to him and they say, hey, sleeper. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Hey, sleeper, wake up and go. That's what Paul tells the Ephesians in the New Testament. He writes to believers and he says, Hey, sleepers, sleeping believers, 
those who have a false sense of peace, a false sense of security, a false sense of comfort found in the world and not in pursuing the presence of the Lord and the word of the Lord, wake up, O sleeper, and arise and do what? Do what Jesus has called us all to do. Arise and go. Go forward in the good works that I've called you to. Go forward in the path that I've paved and prepared for you to go forth in. Forsake your path. Forsake trusting in your own methods. Forsake trusting in your own wisdom. Follow me. Notice in verse 6 it says, they tell Jonah, perhaps your God will consider us. Wow. I want to tell anybody here, those listening, if you don't know your Creator and know God through Jesus Christ, and you think, perhaps God does care about me. Perhaps God does think, I want to tell you, God does more than consider you. He sent His only begotten Son to die as you. He does more than just think about you. He's made the ultimate provision for you to come out of darkness and come out of sin and come out of the rebellion of this world against Him and to come into the Father's family. The Father's family room, His throne room. He's made a way by allowing Christ to not just die for you, but to die as you. That's how much He considers you. Maybe some of you think, even as believers, when you go through a trial, when you go through difficulties, when you go through transitions and times of stress to our flesh and working through it, you wonder, does God consider me? Be reminded today, follower of Christ, He does more than consider you. He sent Jesus to be all you need for life and godliness. He don't just consider, He acted. He don't just consider, He provided. He longs for us to know that experientially. It goes on in verse 10, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid. They say to Jonah, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do? to you, that the sea may be calm for us. For the sea was growing more tempest, and he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. What a question. The mariners and those on the ship began to ask Jonah, If this is because of you, then you probably know what needs to happen. So what, what shall we do to get the sea calm? He said, you got to pick me up and throw me into the sea. It's very interesting. Because in Matthew 12, 39, we find out that Jonah is a type of Jesus. That Jonah is a picture and a type that we would find fulfillment in the the ultimate substance and understanding of what we see in Jonah in Christ. And in Matthew 12, 39... Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. What's the sign? 
He's got to be thrown into the sea. All throughout the Bible, the, the sea is used to represent humanity. It's to represent the multitudes. And notice, the sea is raging. Does this not in 2018 prove the existence of sin and the corruption that's happened in, in, in uh, God's creation? Because you would think, now that we have more te- technology than we've ever had before, now that we have more opportunities than we ever had, now that we seem more sophisticated, you would think the problems of the world would go away, and yet they don't go away, even though we have more knowledge and more technology. Why? Because something has drastically happened to the hearts of man. And the world is still in this tempest and it's raging and there's no peace. There's no satisfaction. The world around us is in turmoil. And just like Jonah had to be picked up and thrown into it, God sent His Son Jesus to be thrown into the sea of humanity so that the storm of sin and selfishness and the storm of the enemy's kingdom could be calmed over our life. Jesus was thrown delightfully by the Father into that sea so that He could bring us to be at peace with Him. That He could bring the storms and the thoughts and the torments that rage in our mind and heart. That He could bring it to calmness. That it could be experience of peace that surpasses all understanding. See, if you remember in Jesus' ministry, in Mark chapter 4, He gives this teaching of the that we refer to as the parable of the sower and some others. And he tells the disciples, he says, let's go to the other side of this lake. And it says in Mark 4, 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. Huh, that sounds like something that's happened before. And they awoke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? A sleeper, awake! Call on your God and see if he'll help us. The disciples, hey, Jesus, sleeper, wake up. Do you not care? Do you not consider the storm around us? Verse 39, he arose and rebuked the wind. And said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be? That even the wind and sea obey him. Oh, we see this parallel between Jonah and Jesus. The same outward circumstances. They're both sleeping in a boat. There's a storm raging around both stories. The people in the boat in both stories are fearful. But here's the interesting thing. That when you think about storms and you think about trials in people's life, outwardly there can be minor differences. Different place, different year. But yet inwardly there can be a major difference. See, the circumstances in Jonah's story and the story we read here of Jesus, the differences in the circumstances are minor. But the cause is a major, major difference. Jonah is experiencing a storm and he's sleeping and yet he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. 
Jesus is sleeping and there's a storm and yet he's the fullness of God's presence and he does nothing apart from depending on the Father. Wow. Same circumstances, but the cause is different. See, here's what we learn. Here's what I've learned in life. That when we speak to storms and nothing happens, we are to find in it the cross of Christ to surrender to. See, Jonah couldn't speak to the storm. Jonah could know why the storm was happening, but until he embraced the cross, meaning he obeyed what the Lord asked of him, not my will but your will, that's the cross in practice, the storm would continue to rage. And it's amazing that Jonah, he asked some sinners to help him embrace it. (laughs) He said, you got to throw me in. You got to throw me in to embrace the cross. Jesus, on the other hand, the storm arises. What does he do? He wakes up because he's already surrendered to the principle of the cross. He does nothing apart from the Father. He's not in the wrong place with the wrong people. He's right in the Father's plan for him. So he wakes up, stands up, and speaks up, and the storm steals. See, listen, here's the point. The authority of God only flows out of death and surrender. God doesn't allow the authority we have as believers to flow out of us if there's not inward surrender to what it is He's asked of us. You see here in the parallel, there's different causes. Jonah's fleeing. Jesus is following the presence of the Lord. He's following the Holy Spirit's leading. Jonah's fleeing. Different causes, but listen, same solution. So sometimes there's storms and circumstances in life and we get hung up on, well, am I like Jonah right now or is this a Jesus? Am I to speak to the storm and stand up and exercise authority or am I to throw myself in and embrace the cross and surrender to a good godly brokenness that I can't control things in life and that's what God's trying to teach me through the storm and circumstance. Listen, don't get hung up on that because either way, whatever the cause of the storm is, the solution is always the same. Listen, the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. Circumstances so that we may surrender to the cross... And then Jesus shows us that you can experience circumstances because you are surrendered to the cross. And why did he experience the storm? To show one, that he's the fulfillment and greater than Jonah. He's the real prophet. But secondly, because where he's heading is a demonic stronghold. There's a man demon-possessed. And the devil and a man filled with multitude of demons don't want Jesus to reach that place because Jesus liberates the hungry person even if they're bound. He sets them free. So when the cross is resisted in our life, circumstances will overwhelm us. You know why they'll overwhelm us? Because we'll try to fix the circumstance or make it through the circumstance depending on our own ability and we'll be overwhelmed. But I have found in what Jesus shows us is when the cross is embraced, circumstances can be overwhelmed by us. Paul says, yet in all these things, 
suffering and famine and all these things I'm more than a conqueror. Why? Because he was surrendered. He was surrendered to the cross, which is the principle that it's not my life. It's Jesus' life. And I'm following him and his presence and where he leads me. It's interesting because after this talk between Jonah and the people and Jonah 1.13, it says, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempest against them. Wow. Jonah says, listen, guys. Hey, sinners, the only way this is going to stop is you got to throw me into the sea. The only way storms and sinners' lives ultimately, the storm of their heart, the sense of no peace is going to stop is Jesus had to come and be thrown into the sea and die and take our death and your death between heaven and earth. But so many people get hung up because they say, but wait a minute, people are good, I'm good, I've done good things. They look at other people and they say, man, I see good in them. Here you see, look, in these sinners, they have enough goodness in them to say, wait a minute, we don't want to throw you, Joan, into the sea. There's got to be another way. And what do they do? They start working harder to try to overcome the sea and and they try to become more of a social movement and let's be more progressive and and let's tackle issues that's always been in the world from a different angle and they're trying to row harder but the sea and the wickedness around us still rages. Because listen, it's not just the tree of evil that leads to death. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even the good of you and I or the good of people can overcome the sin, the evil we've committed. And the storm and the rule of sin and selfishness in our life cannot be broken until Jesus is thrown in to the sea, meaning you have to accept there's no other way to come back to your Creator, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what we learn. We learn the difference between trying to work for your salvation, work to be made right for God, versus the sacrifice of the ultimate Jonah, Jesus Christ, into the sea of humanity who died on the cross of Jesus for us. Listen, every one of us, you who are here today, you have to stop trusting in your own hard work. And you have to put Jesus on the cross. It's very humbling to recognize I have to, my sin has to put Jesus on the cross. The King of heaven, I have to put Him on the cross for there ever to be the storm of sin and selfishness quieted and calm in my life. And then you have to accept that work of Jesus on the cross as the only way. As the only way. The more you roll, the storm still rages. The more you try, the more the storm rages. And that's why in the New Testament, Jesus in Mark 8, 8, 34, Casey, if you'll come, said, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What's Jesus say? You're in a storm facing circumstance. You want to follow me. You want to keep pursuing the presence and the kingdom, my purpose. You got to take up the cross. 
you got to take up the cross. Now, Jonah 1 and 17, after they finally give in and they pick Jonah and they throw him to sea, it says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from his, the fish's belly, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited him on dry land. Then it says right after that in Jonah 3, 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Oh, this is interesting. Listen, brothers and sisters. The same cross stays in front of you when you flee from the presence and what God asks you to do. The same cross stays in front of you. The initial cross resisted will be the same cross when you're restored. It's just we have to pay a lot more than we want to pay when we resist instead of surrender the first time. But you can't flee. Here's what I'm saying. You can't flee what God's asking of you and Him forget about it. And Him say, okay, that's fine. We'll just go around that lesson. We'll go around that surrender. We'll go around dealing with that character issue. We'll go around dealing with that unforgiveness. We'll go around dealing with those negative emotions. We'll just go around and, no, no, no. The cross resisted is the same cross when we're restored. And when we finally get it, if you're slow of learning at times like me, you understand why flee then. I just pay more than I'm going to pay because ultimately I'm going to have to, to move forward. I'm going to have to pay the application of the cross, which is death to my will and self and surrender to what the Lord is asking of me to trust Him instead of trusting me. Jonah 3, 4, it says, Jonah finally, he enters the city and he begins to walk through it. He begins to cry out. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, they believed God. And they proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word of the Lord even came. Uh, the word came to the king of Nineveh. And he himself covered himself with sackcloth, set in ashes. And Jonah 3, 9, he says, Who can tell if God will turn and relent? Turn away from his fierce anger so that, he may, that we may not perish and God saw their works. Notice that. God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them. He did not do it. Wow. Do you see this? You see a picture of what true repentance is. Notice the king said, listen, we're going to stop doing the wickedness we've been doing whether God still destroys us or not. Let me tell you, that's true repentance, friend. When you don't have crocodile tears that say, God, now I'll stop if you'll do this. God, I'll embrace the cross if you promise to do this. No, no, no. True repentance is, God, whether the ship ever holds together, God, whether the storm ever ceases, you are God and you spoke to me. You're the potter, I'm the clay, and I won't resist it. I will turn regardless of the results of me turning and doing what you ask of me. Listen, that's true repentance. Boy, that's true repentance. See, true repentance focuses on doing what's right 
regardless of what the result is. That's true repentance. Notice it doesn't say God saw their tears. Notice it doesn't say God saw their apologies. Listen, God saw that they stopped doing their evil deeds and they turned from the evil way. That's true repentance. That's true repentance. A change of the preference of our will. A change of the preference of our mind. It's not a change for results. It's a change to do what's right because it's right. Confession's one thing. Acknowledging that we've messed up is one thing. But repentance is a whole other thing. And repentance has not taken place until the mind and will and the works have been turned from. They repent. God's mercy hits the whole nation. I mean, we're talking about a massive revival amongst the wickedness of their day. The Assyrians would do the most horrible things you could imagine to people when they conquered them. They just wouldn't kill them and put them out of misery. They would torture them, and they would torture them, and they would torture them. They repent of this, and God has mercy. And then Jonah 4.1, Jonah is P.O.'d. He is displeased. He is ticked off. He is absolutely filled with rage and anger. Says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Is this not why I fled previously from Tarshish? For I know that you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What in the world? God's mercy they seem so minor listen you're looking at someone that has committed major major horrible sins but in the light of God's mercy they seem so minor that God's mercy hit an entire nation that was filled with wickedness Jonah's mad why? because we learn in Jonah that the first cross we accept is doing God's will but the second cross is what is the attitude and the heart and the character as we do God's will oh if I could get some brothers and sisters and some churches and some people I love but if they would let some people speak into their life because we live in a culture and even a church culture that long as the accomplishment is great then everything must be great but the, that's just the first cross of accepting God's call. But it's not just doing God's will. It's how we go about fulfilling God's will that matters. I know some people that's done some great things, but they ain't done it in a great way. And I love them enough to cover their sins today and not tell you what I know. But what I'm saying is, is I'm like that too. That I have done some great things by the grace of God that He's had for me, but I've not always done it with a great attitude. I've not always done it in a spirit of mercy. I've not always done it in a spirit of gentleness. And in the kingdom, it's not just about doing the will of God it's also about the cross of how we go about doing 
God's will. See, Jonah didn't have a problem with preaching. Jonah didn't have a problem with sound doctrine because he got the message right. He hit the nail right on the head. The problem we learn from Jonah is we don't just need the gospel and the cross to get us to surrender to God's will for our life. We need the gospel and the cross to deal with our attitudes and our desires, our prejudices, our expectations as we do God's will. Some of you are angry today because, yes, you surrendered to God's will in Jesus Christ a long time ago, but you're angry and frustrated that He's not, he's not done what His will is for you the way you wanted it done. And Jonah teaches us that we also have to embrace the cross. That we're not just doing God's will on the outside, but we let God's will of His character and the right spirit and the right heart of mercy and slow to anger be on the inside. I've gotten my children to, to do the right thing a lot of times, brother, but I ain't got my children to do the right thing in the right way a lot of times. We learn from Jonah that God, He don't just care about the end. The end doesn't just justify the means. He cares deeply about the means, how we go about doing what He's asked us to do. Jesus is not just the end. He is the way of how to reach the goal. God wants this church to grow, but He's just as, as focused on how and the methods we grow. We see that in Jonah. I want to tell people today, don't despise your birthright of God's mercy. Jonah, he was concerned about his reputation. See, it's one thing if you go and you tell people, listen, here's what God wants for the dwelling place. Here's what God wants to do. But then people began to make choices against the cross that he has for them in order for what was said to come about because then you look wrong Jonah was concerned about looking wrong Jonah was concerned about his reputation Jonah teaches us that like Jesus we make ourselves with no reputation we obey what God asks us to, to do and we leave the results to Him. We don't just obey, we let the cross deal with our attitudes. See, our reputation, your reputation, what people think about you, should be a minor concern as long as God's mission is a major concern. But see, Jonah lost focus on God's mission that He was a God of all people. That He's a God that's slow to anger. He, he takes no delight in any of the wicked perishing. He desires all to come to repentance. He desires all to come to the knowledge of truth. And Jonah, he got blinded from that reality because he was so focused on his reputation. What if God's way to answer his heart for some neighbors and, and co-workers and some family members you had? What if God's way is a way where you have to die to caring about what people say about you? 
if you see the Father's mercy and His compassion for them, and you embrace that cross, listen, it's one thing to, to pray for people because we ought to. It's another thing to pray with them because the affections of Jesus is working on the inside of us. It's one thing to do good works. It's another thing to do those good works because it's the affection and attitudes of Jesus empowering them. See, we need the gospel not just for competence. He was a competent prophet. He was a competent minister. But we learn in Jonah we also need the gospel to be touch our character. We need the gospel not just for the will of God, but we need the gospel for the way of God. In the New Testament, it speaks to us and says, Hey, elect of God, as you're bearing fruit, you got to put on certain attitudes. Tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Oh, God's called this community to do great exploits. But we have to understand that the gospel is also for our expectations, our emotions, and our attitudes. We need the gospel not just for our hands. We need the gospel for our hearts. We need the gospel not just for sinners. We need the gospel for ourselves, saints. We need the gospel not just for our mission. We need the gospel for our motives as we go about the mission. We need the gospel not just for our abilities, but we need the gospel for our attitudes. We need the gospel not just for our exploits, but we need the gospel for our expectations. We need the gospel not just for empowerment. We need the gospel for our emotions. And Jonah, in Jonah 4.10, he says, But Lord, you've had pity. Or the Lord says to Jonah, You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Jonah gets mad again because his plant grows up over and provides shade for him. Then a worm eats it, it dies, and now he's mad about that. And you know what God tells Jonah? Listen, Jonah. Jonah, if you can be concerned about a plant, a plant you didn't even labor to make grow, a plant you don't even have the ability to grow, can I as God not be concerned about a people that I made and that I love should I not pity Nineveh what if dwelling place the growth that God does want to give us what if it what if God wants it to be people that's not like you we say God will do your will but it's got to be our way or we learn from Jonah Lord we want your will but we surrender to whatever your way is can I tell some marriages in here that you said God we want your will but you're frustrated and anger because you're trying to control and dictate the way that he wants to bring about strength the way that he wants to bring about health some parents, some businessmen, businesswomen. This is what we learned from Jonah. Have you ever been apprehended by God and yet still angry? I have. I have. 
But you know, even the brothers and sisters that do things wrong, God is still merciful and long-suffering to them. What a cross. And God's pity for all of us put Jesus on the cross for all of us. Can God be God today in our marriage, in our relationships, in our life? Not just God over our life, but God over the ways that He chooses to use to bring glory in His life. Can we surrender to that cross? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.